Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we're continuing our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, with a message entitled, Faith When You Are Down from the Mountain. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 17, verses 9 to 20, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I've seen it many times. You know, a group of people from a local church, maybe it's the youth group or the college group, they go on a short-term missions trip and they come back and they're inspired. You know, they've been praying more fervently as a group than ever before. They may have seen people come to faith in Christ. I mean, maybe they've witnessed the courageous faith of Christian people who have so much less than we do here in North America. And yet they don't complain as easily as we do. It seems, at least for the moment, as if the faith of those short-term mission kids, while well, it's soaring. And just for a little while, they begin to imagine what life really should be like when they follow Jesus more passionately than ever before. And they determine to do just that. They're never going to forget. They're never going to allow their zeal or their passion to peter out. And then, of course, the inevitable happens. They come home, and their home church just seems like it's always been. You know, someone's complaining about the music and after church rather than discussing the glory of God and how to be faithful. You know, and people are talking about the latest movie they've seen or the latest hockey game. And in response, our short-term team is deeply discouraged. And as time goes by, little by little, they're back to where they were before. It's such a discouraging experience. You see, when they come back, it seems like finally nothing's changed at all. It's called the letdown. It's called when we come down off the mountain. You know, I, for one, have had many such experiences. You know, there have been times in my ministry where I've seen crowds of people come forward to receive Christ as Lord and Savior after one of my sermons. I've also known the joy of leading people to Christ that were, you know, for some of them died in the wool atheists. And when things like that happen, I have, after years of experience, come to anticipate a horrible letdown. It doesn't just seem like a slow coming down from the mountain. It feels like being pushed off the mountain as a devil comes with, with horrible accusations and I have feelings of uselessness and the temptation to just quit. I mean, after all, how can I serve the Lord when I'm such an unworthy servant? You may have experienced the same things. I mean, one moment you've felt you're on the top of the mountain only to be followed by what seems like a cold, hard slap of reality. Everything is exactly what it's been before. We've been studying an amazing moment. You know, Peter, James, and John have been on the Mount of Transfiguration. They've seen Jesus in all his glory, and it was a stunning moment. Had they ever understood just how great and glorious this Jesus of theirs actually was? But they saw it now. I mean, how could they ever be the same? But when they come down from the mountain, they will deal with a Jesus who is frustrated with the small faith of his disciples. I mean, wow, did they ever come down hard? You know, the middle part of Matthew 17 has that kind of a feeling attached to it. I mean, the chapter opens up just six days after those wonderful events at Caesarea Philippi. And the disciples, I mean, they're quite clear. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He is the Son of the living God. And furthermore, they learn that they will be God's mighty warriors. They're going to be bashing down the devil's front door. They're going to be taking captives from him. Men and women from even the most pagan environments and cultures will come to faith in Christ. And then after that, Jesus takes three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, onto a high mountain where he allows them to see him in all his splendor and glory. 
And because Jesus has met with Moses and Elijah, the three disciples are not just overwhelmed with a, with a splendor of the whole thing, but they're also filled with questions. I mean, they're seized with passion and they want to know more, but they certainly don't want the effect of that moment to die out either. They want to live in it and they want Jesus to tell them what all of this means. And I'm reading Matthew 17, 9 to 13. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. So two things. First, we have to understand that when Jesus told Peter, James, and John not to tell anyone about the vision on the mountain, it's for the same reason that he told them not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. I mean, not yet. The time was going to come. Once Jesus had been raised from the dead, then was the time to tell absolutely everything but you're going to have to sit on this for a while until the time is right. And there is some wisdom that we can all learn from this. You know, there's a time to speak and there is a time to refrain from speaking. And if you're married, might I suggest you learn that. You know, if you think your wife or husband has just done something that's really dumb, might I suggest it's really not a good time to speak. There is definitely a time to remain silent. And may I suggest, if you're saying things that deeply hurt your spouse, that you should take the shut up pill. Say nothing. Speak when you have time to filter your thoughts and when you can speak in love and with a sense of understanding for your spouse. All right, that was free marriage counseling. No charge at all. That advice was priceless, however. But here's my point. Wisdom has to guide us in our communication. I mean, think about the new Christian. Is now the time to speak with him or her about the differences between infralapsarianism and, and, and supralapsarianism? Well, I would say, no, not now. Now is the time to speak about who Jesus is, why his death on the cross provides forgiveness for sins and, and acceptance before God. See, let me say it again. Not every time is the time to speak about everything. And in terms of the transfiguration, the time to speak would only be right after Jesus stepped triumphantly from his tomb and proved himself to be the Lord of life and death. That was the time to say, boy, do I have a story for you. See, there's a time for everything. And of course, right now was not the time to speak about this openly. But there are still questions that the three needed answered before they go back. And in this case, it surrounds the person of Elijah. Why do the theologians teach that Elijah must come first? Now, regarding that question, doesn't it seem surprising to you? I mean, why are they fixated on Elijah? I mean, I think I would have wanted to ask very different questions than they did. I'd have asked, do you look like that in heaven? And have you had conversations with all righteous dead? I mean, what's Abraham like? And and what's he doing right now? And, and, And this powerful light that came from your face, could you explain that to us? I think that's what I would have asked. And so from the outset, it seems, well, it seems like a really dumb thing to ask about Elijah. Ah, but it's not dumb at all. If you think about it carefully, it should become quite clear. Jesus has just now spoken of his resurrection. And six days earlier, he has spoken about his death. See, it all sounds like those events aren't going to be very far away. And that's where the question of Elijah comes in. 
Everyone in Israel had been taught that Elijah would have to come just before the Messianic era begins. While Jesus had affirmed he was the the Messiah, the transfiguration had left them in no doubt whatsoever as to who he was. They knew that the fact that Jesus was among them was a clear indicator that they were living in the last days. But they're confused. Where does this dying and rising fit in? And how come Elijah hasn't shown up to usher you in? But Elijah clearly didn't come. And we're trying so hard to understand it. Look, nothing's making sense, Jesus. And you'll notice Jesus' response. First of all, he says, you weren't wrong to expect Elijah. You know, not everything the religious teachers in Jerusalem teach is wrong. I mean, they they actually did get some things right. Elijah does precede the coming of the Messiah. But but didn't you notice? Elijah has come. After all, what did you think when you were witnessing what you saw in the ministry of John the Baptist? He had all of Jerusalem over the Jordan River, and people were confessing their sins, and there's a great revival going on. And furthermore, John was announcing that he was the forerunner of the Messiah. After me, said John, someone is coming who is so much greater than I am, I'm not worthy to untie the laces of his sandals. And so Jesus says, here's where the scribes and the religious teachers made their mistake. It isn't going to be a literal Elijah. It's going to be someone whose ministry mirrors Elijah. He comes in the power of Elijah. That event has already happened. Oh, okay, we missed that. But then Jesus goes back to what he has been stressing. He wants to talk about his suffering. Look, Peter, James, and John, they're going to be treating me exactly the way they treated John. Oh, my. Here we are about suffering again. Yeah, if Elijah did come and John was the one, then does that mean in this wicked age, they'll not only reject Elijah, They're going to reject the Messiah. Oh, I can almost hear the glory of the transfiguration coming down to earth. Oh, does this event on the mountain mean that the revelation of your glory to the whole world is a long ways away yet? And is there a long valley of suffering before we get to that? Oh my, oh my, we're coming down to reality. Back to the Bible Canada has been privileged to have sat under the Bible teaching of Dr. John Newfeld for five years. We have seen the blessings of God upon this ministry, and one of those ways is the excellent teaching that Dr. Newfeld provides. God is at work in our nation, and that is something to celebrate. Back to the Bible Canada is celebrating this milestone in ministry by offering you, our valued friends in ministry, Dr. John's newest series, Faith and What We Hope For and a special edition of our 2020 Highlight Reel series, which includes five of the most noteworthy messages from Dr. John on CD for you, free this month. It's a modest way of saying thanks for your support and encouragement. To request your gift today, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. It is possible to live through a groundbreaking moment in human history and not to have a clue in the world as to what's going on. See, it takes some insight to understand what God is doing. In fact, if I think about it, I think it's true today. We are in our day witnessing a staggering reality. 
The church of Jesus Christ is going through an incredible change. It's spreading more rapidly than ever before into parts of the world where the gospel has never been heard. The center of the church is moving from Europe and North America to countries that we would have never imagined in the past. And the reason for the shocking amount of persecution of Christians in the world today is because of that one fact. The devil is striking back. One thing's clear. The world is changing profoundly. And hear me, no news agency in the West has even begun to notice what God is doing. That's what I'm talking about. You can be at the epicenter of the most exciting moment in history and have no idea as to what's going on. But amazingly, the disciples have been shown what's going on. They knew it when they were on the mountaintop. These these were amazing days. But when they came down from the mountain, I'm now reading Matthew 17, 14 to 16. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that the minute they're back, the demands on Jesus' ministry is as great as ever before. Immediately there's a crowd. A man comes forward. He has spotted Jesus. And immediately his impulse is to kneel before him. And he says, my son is suffering terribly. And then, of course, the man describes what seems to be epilepsy. Both Mark and Luke in the telling of this event say that the boy would have convulsions and grind his teeth and become rigid. He would have seizures. Sometimes he would fall into the fire. But he says, I look, I know you're the Lord. And if you come, he's going to be healed. I could almost imagine Peter, James, and John. You know, they see the man kneeling and they see his hope and they must be thinking, man, you don't even know the half of it. If you had seen what we just saw, you'd never get off your knees. You start worshiping this man. You are right now, you're kneeling before the Lord of glory himself. What an amazing moment. Do you know the moment that you're in? But then the man adds something that has the beginning of the letdown. The man said, I brought my son to your disciples, that is, the nine that Jesus had left behind, and they could do nothing. Had not Jesus given his disciples the authority to heal and to cast out demons? Yeah, he had. And hadn't he just told the 12 that they would be punching the lights out of the devil? Yeah, he promised that as well. And yet as soon as Jesus is gone and they're acting on their own, they seem to have no more power even to make a dent into the devil's front door. But of course, that's not the end of the matter. It's Jesus' response that is truly shocking. Look at verse 17. And Jesus answered, Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Who is Jesus talking to? I think he's speaking to the man because Mark tells us that the man wasn't even sure himself that Jesus could heal the boy. And he's also talking to the crowd, but I think specifically he's talking to the 12. Stop for a moment. Consider Jesus' response. It seems emotional, doesn't it? And quite frankly, it is. Remember that Jesus is not only God in human flesh, but he's fully human as well. And throughout the Gospels, we see that on numerous occasions, Jesus displays genuine emotions. He openly wept at Lazarus' tomb. Mark 7, 34, when he heals a deaf man, Mark tells us that he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he sighed. The Gospel tells us of Jesus' joy, of his exhaustion, of his anger, of the 
hypocrisy of the religious leaders. He could be indignant, and he could know sorrow, and he regularly displayed compassion, all those things. We know that in the garden his soul was in anguish. And here in our passage, he seems to be expressing frustration because of the slowness at which his disciples were learning the lessons of faith. It was the great Bible teacher, the late B.B. Warfield, who once wrote a piece which he entitled, The Emotional Life of Our Lord. And I know some of us are surprised to hear about this. You know, for some of us, the expression of emotions are an indicator that we're out of control. And so we say, try to get a hold of yourself or get a grip, keep your emotions in check. And behind that, of course, is the idea that expressing emotions allows our passions to rule over our will, and that usually leads us to say things that we're going to be sorry about later on. But it is possible to express godly emotions. For instance, in Ephesians 4.26, Paul commands, be angry, but don't sin. We can be angry and not sin. We can be frustrated. We can be filled with grief. We can know what it is to laugh from our bellies and grieve out of our soul. And we can do all of that and not sin. Emotions, like everything else, aren't bad on their own. They're only bad when they're ruled by sin. And Jesus is not ruled by sin. And yet he looks at his disciples and he says, how long before you begin to understand what I've been teaching you? Let me just stop here and make application. Is Jesus ever frustrated with you and I today? Yeah, I think so. That doesn't mean he withdraws his love from us, not not for a second. It certainly doesn't mean that he's going to give up on us, but he wants us to see his response to us when we simply won't learn. Verses 17b to 20, bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. So please remember that not every case of an illness involves a demon, but this one clearly did. The father hadn't mentioned that. Maybe he hadn't noticed, and it would seem that the disciples might not have noticed that either. But Jesus notices immediately, and he rebukes the demon, and the boy is instantly healed. And that, of course, leads the disciples to ask, why couldn't we heal the boy? It's as if they're saying, look, Jesus, I know you're frustrated by us, and I know there's something that we should have been learning, but we just don't understand. What was the problem? And his answer is immediate. It's so easy to understand. You have an insufficient faith. And that means, of course, that when the demon didn't leave immediately, they shouldn't have stopped praying. You should have persisted all the way through until that matter was done. Don't take a stab at it and then say, well, I guess that didn't work, and then walk away. And that's the point of the mustard seed. Look, it's small, and yet it grows into a plant that in a Typical Palestinian garden is the largest plant there. If you saw the potential of you continuing to pray, you would have seen that your small faith is connected to the limitless resources of God. Luke 18 verse 1 has Jesus teaching his disciples that they were always to pray and not to give up. See, I wonder if you understand. See, Jesus isn't saying that whenever we pray about anything, just keep on praying it. It's just going to happen in the end. 
you know, that, you know, eventually, you know, you're going to win the lottery or you're going to eventually get that new Porsche that you wanted or eventually you're going to get into med school. See, some people say, you know, I mean, don't ever stop believing. Just, just keep praying for that thing. Now, that's not what Jesus is saying. Instead, this is about praying for things that are in the will of God. Jesus has given his disciples the task to cast out demons, and he had promised them that they would be kicking down the devil's door. But when it didn't immediately happen, how should they respond? Should they run away? Indeed, how should we respond when we're doing the will of God and it doesn't come out well? I think we need to tell our Lord that even when we have had wonderful mountaintop experiences, we are prone to forget everything that we've learned. Tell him that because actually, he already knows. And then make up your mind never to stop praying. For if you simply don't give up, if you go through the highs and you go through the lows, if you go through moments of great faith followed by moments of great failure, just don't stop praying and don't you ever give up. Eventually, you're going to learn And you're going to be amazed that you, even you, can move mountains in faith. You can survive the ups and the downs because your faith doesn't depend on the ups and the downs. Your faith depends on the limitless resources of God. Don't you ever give up. John, a lot of questions actually come to mind because I think a lot of people struggle, uh, even in their faith or in their walk of faith. And I'm wondering, you know, is it okay to live at the bottom of the mountain sometimes? Yeah, I mean, uh, most of the time when we're at the bottom of the mountain, you know, we sure didn't choose to go there. And I know that some people in the times when it's really tough in their lives— Um, You know, I either ask questions of, you know, does God still care? And then they'll ask questions about, um, you know, maybe there's something wrong with my own spirituality. I don't know, you know, (laughs) maybe I I should always be on the top of the mountain if I'm following Christ, that, that kind of thing, which, of course, as you and I know, it's just unrealistic to imagine that on this side of eternity, things are always going to go well. There are going to be times when we are really at the bottom of the mountain, when it's tough to go forward. But in those times, we remember that we go forward not because of how we feel or how things are going. We go forward because of the promises that God has made to us, that his promises are true. We carry on on the basis of what he has said, not on how we're feeling or even how we're doing. It's very important. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, The Mysteries of Compassion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. Hi, this is Joshua from InDoubt, a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Every week, InDoubt invites young adults into a conversation about the very real and challenging questions of faith, life, and culture. Our goal is to confront life's issues with the help of guest pastors and Christian leaders and to dive into the Bible to discover its truth and relevance for living life as a follower of Jesus. Join myself, Daniel, or Isaac every week along with special guests from around the globe to discuss things that matter most to you. Our hope is to reach not only the young adult who stands firm in their faith, but also the one who has questions or doubts. In Doubt can be heard through our podcast, mobile app, or on radio, and you can check out all of our programs and resources at indoubt.ca. 
In Doubt is a ministry of Back to the Bible Canada and possible only through the generous gifts of those who share our heart to engage a new generation with the Bible. For more information, or if you would like to support In Doubt with a financial gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit indoubt.ca.